I guess that's why they call him Morning Piss Dylan, right? Because <laughs> totally. I mean, you you know, that's a that's a special place in your heart for the guy who's like, it's cold, it's raining, whatever. But I know my boy's got to go to the bathroom, so here I go. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We wanted to empower you, so we've created one of the premier lifestyle shows that brings you the tools previously only known to elite high performers. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here at The Art of Charm and get some great free content that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com, we've got a great blog with tons of amazing content and in-depth articles, or if you're new to the show and you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website We'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts here on The Art of Charm. We'll send you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, vocal tonality, dating and attraction, persuasion, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, public speaking, and more. We've got live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. We're sold out five to six months in advance, so if you're even thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP by phone or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com, to get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. We're looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with my friend Cole Hatter. He's an entrepreneur. He's a, had a crazy backstory. He's made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, and now he's thrown a great event, which I'm speaking. I'm particularly excited about it. We're going to talk about something called a for-purpose business, how to make your money matter and not just do something for the paycheck, but do something you really love, how he got into speaking and got the attention of a huge baller, which kicked off his career, and how you can actually replicate that, and of course, the mindsets that got him to where he is today as a super high performer who is very, very happy with where his efforts are going and what he's creating. So enjoy this one with Cole Hatter. Cole, you've got one of those bios that's like, I usually hate this kind of bio, and I got to know you a little bit, we, we talked a lot before, so it's a little bit forgivable, but it says, Cole Hatter is a husband, father, entrepreneur, investor, and award-winning speaker. Usually people put that in there because they want people to go, wow, that's a lot of stuff. Now, your case is a little bit different, which is why I say it's forgivable, because you do focus a lot on the loved ones around you, the kids, the wife, 
and your for purpose business. But usually when someone's like husband, father, I'm like, here's <laughs> yeah, the yeah. part where you tell me you're a social media consultant or something, right? Author, speaker, yeah, yeah, right. I get it. It's it's the it's the Silicon Valley or just business world version of LA's Los Angeles's famous singer, actress, model, photographer kind of business card that you get, but I get it, dude. Copy paste. Yeah. But you know, tell tell us why you're different than Tell me, tell me why you're special, Cole. <laughs> well, because my mom told me since I was a little boy. No, just kidding. Right. Uh, okay, cool. Well, basically, who I am is a dude that had some pretty crazy life events pretty early in life that set me on a different course of where I didn't want to do what everyone else is doing. I wanted to do essentially the exact opposite. And what I've found is that life is better this way. And I take all my enthusiasm all my ambition and I go all out in business and in life. And the result has been making a lot of money and having a family that I absolutely cherish and thank God cherishes me back. And uh, now I'm just on a mission to share that message and strategy with the world because I think more people deserve what I've accidentally stumbled into that uh, is what a lot of people tell me is a dream life. Excellent. Yeah, I love it. What are you doing these days? Because I'm going to your event Thrive. The reason you and I got in touch in the first place is because we were chatting on the phone and I was like, oh, this guy's got a really interesting backstory because it's really easy for a lot of folks to be like, I made a lot of money and so listen to me. And frankly, business is not just that anymore. I mean, it can be for some, but that's not interesting, at least not to me. Totally. Yeah, business is boring. It, it, yeah, in a lot of ways it can be. I mean, not always and not every business, but tell us how you started off because you you were like a firefighter to begin with. Graduated high school and went right into firefighting. I uh, decided that, you know, corporate America is cool for some. It just wasn't a match for me. I wanted to do something. I felt very impassioned to do something where I could see a measurable difference in my actions. And I just didn't see that connection in the corporate setting. And so I evaluated, you know, joining the military or being a doctor. And I was just afraid of going to that much school or being a police officer. And I, I got in too much trouble. So that wasn't a fit. And then bam, I thought of firefighting as a way to literally save lives, play with fire and get paid for it was a, was a perfect fit for me. So I uh, graduated high school, moved to Seattle, Washington, where I worked with the department and was living what I thought was at the time my dream life, uh, you know, was, was doing things that I uh, resonated with me, helping people. And then, uh, you know, kind of like you said, the backstory began where I was, I got a really bad car accident where I was ejected out of the car going about 80 miles an hour. And uh, when you get thrown out of a car going 80, you usually at least leave a little bit of skin on the pavement. I had a little worse than that and, and got, had to get airlifted in a helicopter from the freeway to the trauma center because they did not think I would survive. I was really hurt. And um, there were three of us in the car. My best friend in the world, Steve, who was like a brother to me. We grew up together. He was driving. Matt, our mutual best friend, the three of us were like the trifecta three amigos. He was in the passenger seat. I was in the back seat of his uh, jacked up, you know, lifted Toyota 4Runner on huge tires and a lift, right? And uh, I got ejected. Steve got ejected. Matt did not. And uh, again, going to the hospital, getting airlifted there. They didn't know what my long-term recovery would be. Obviously, I did survive. My best friend, Steve, who was driving, did not. And my one and only memory I have of... I don't remember driving. I don't even remember planning the trip. I, and I still have none of that memory. The only memory I have is waking up in the hospital bed with my parents standing at the foot of my bed you know, coming to and saying, where the heck am I? What happened? And my mom and dad saying, you had been in a car accident. Of course, I'm like, what do you mean car accident? And, you know, they expanded that me and Steve and Matt were driving. I interrupted my mom. I said, where's Steve? And my mom said that he was in a different part of the hospital, that I was in the intensive care unit and that he was downstairs getting ready for a surgery. And I asked him what surgery he needed. And my mom said that he was getting ready for an organ transplant. And uh, I said, whatever he needs, he can have mine right? This is my, this is my brother. This is my boy. Um, if he needs a surgery for an organ, then give him mine. And my mom said, no, honey, they're getting him ready uh, for an organ transplant. They're going to donate his kidneys. And I was still so hurt. My brain was all swollen and bleeding. I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. So I said, well, what are his chances? And my mom said, honey, he doesn't have any chances. And so I demanded to be taken to him and the hospital was super accommodating. They threw all my machines and all the tubes and everything that was plugged into me. They, they threw it all into my lap. They wheeled me down to the elevator and, and they wheeled me next to Steve where I was able to hold him until his heart finally stopped. And then the ER surgeon said, Cole, it's time to say goodbye. And uh, I had to say goodbye to him. And then uh, what's crazy is my last memory is as I was going back into my room in the intensive care unit, this surgeon that happened to work on me when I arrived just happened to be there in the hall. 
and he kneeled down. He had tears coming out of his face and he had just seen that Matt or Steve had passed. And, uh, he said that, uh, you know, he was a surgeon that worked on me and that he has no medical explanation or reason of why I survived that I should never have with the circumstances of the accident and my injuries. I should have never made it and that he cannot explain why I did. And then he just pointed up and said, someone up there must have a plan for you. And then I pass back out and everything's black. So that was the huge rocker right there. Yeah, sure. Let me let me stop you for a second. I, that's that's a gr- like terribly traumatic incident. Don't you, how did the accident happen? Because I would be so freaking pissed at the person who caused it. I don't know if I would ever get over it. I know everyone's like, oh no, you know, forgive. And I'm like, no, I just, I don't see it. I have no memory. Um, and Matt has no memory from the accident either. Uh, cause he got super banged up. He had to get rushed in an ambulance. He wasn't as quite as bad as Steve and I were. And, uh, he doesn't remember it, but in the police report, we were the only car involved. There were no other cars as a part of the accident. And what the police report says is that there was a yellow car. We were in the number one lane or the fast lane. There was only a two lane highway. It was from Southern California out to Las Vegas. And there was a car in the slow lane. And as we were passing the car, uh, they did not check their blind spot or whatever. And they, according to the police report, they swerved into our lane, which caused Steve to swerve to avoid hitting them, which put us into the dirt center divider. And in a lifted top heavy forerunner on dirt at 80 miles an hour, uh, we lost control and started flipping. And as we were flipping, both Steve and I were ejected. And then, of course, uh, again, I don't remember this, but assuming that that yellow car was there and that the witness that saw it, they just left. What? Oh my God, that's awful. Yeah, no one pulled over. So the only people that were there were you know, the vehicles that saw the accident immediately pulled over to come to our aid because you know Steve and I were both thrown out of the car. We were not okay. Uh, we were bleeding everywhere and it was bad. And so uh, they aided us. Nobody chased that car and nobody knows who they are. And to be, you know, I've wrestled with this my whole life, but you know, they might've been such a clueless driver that not only did they not see us, they may not even know that they caused an accident. Right. So yeah. as, as much as I might wish that person an ill fate, you know, I don't, I don't even know if they know what happened, but it did. And it changed my life forever. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. Th- at some point the anger is pointless. I just, and I get that on a rational, logical level that like, well, there's no point in being angry. It won't solve anything. And I'm like, yeah, but I still would be, right? Yeah, no, totally, right? I mean, man, this is so, I, we just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of this accident. So it has been a decade of me struggling with all emotions, all of them. Obviously, after a decade, I can now talk about it and keep my composure. But it is this event and the, the one that immediately followed were the two greatest events uh, in both a good and bad way ever. And so, um, you know, I've, I've learned to take this experience and, and make good with it. And that's the only thing I can do. Now, there's something else happened shortly thereafter. For God's sakes, Cole, if you just got in a terrible car wreck, that wouldn't be enough, apparently. Right. Not to make light of it, obviously, but tell us what happened after that. So Matt and I survived. Steve did not. And we were grieving the loss of our best friends and both guilty that we survived and he didn't. And, uh, I was in a wheelchair immediately after that accident. About two months later, I was up and moving around on crutches. And Matt saw me going into a huge depression that I was just withdrawing in like a turtle in the shell and just was not doing well emotionally or psychologically. And so he said, dude, let's go out in the desert and ride our dirt bikes. I know you're still on crutches, but I'll help you and you'll be sitting on your bike and you know, we'll be mellow. We'll just put around and just to get you back in away from it all out in the desert camping, just the boys. Our parents agreed, and as Matt and I and our, our friend Scott were cruising around the desert, Matt and I fell into a mine shaft. Matt's first. I'm about 30 seconds behind him. Scott's behind me. Matt climbs this little embankment and disappears across the top because when you're at the bottom of a hill looking up, you can only see the rim. You can't see the other side. I then get to the top about 30 seconds later, and there was no top. It was a hole. Kind of to explain it visually, it'd be almost like an ant hole. You're climbing the side and then boom, there's just a hole in the middle. It's like a volcano, right? Where you get to the top and you're like, oh my God, there's a huge hole here. Yeah, and so that hole was 20 by 10 feet wide and I fell in and on my way down, I was able to reach out and grab a bush that was no bigger than a trash can when I say trash can, like one of those ones that you have in your bathroom that are like shin high. It was a very little bush and I was able to hang on with one arm and just look down in the hole of darkness and luckily Scott... uh, kind of saw what happened. He was a little bit more to the left than I was. And so he did the only thing he could have and literally laid his bike down and fell off of it because he wouldn't have stopped in time if he hit his brake. 
So he came, comes tumbling to a stop at the edge of the hole, runs over, grabs me by my armpits, pulls me out. You know, we, we didn't want to believe Matt was in there. So Scott back, got back on his bike, started it, continued on, came right back and said, dude, I could see, you know, from this vantage point, I could see everywhere he's in the hole. And, um, we called 911. Yeah, long story short, the fire department arrived, the police arrived, the helicopters were circling the desert to see if he had gone off and gotten hurt somewhere else and was lost or something. And it took them seven hours until the police chaplain said, I need to speak with the family. And so uh, he pulled me aside with my parents who had been called out there, Matt's mom and dad, and then Steve's mom and dad who had just passed away two months earlier. And then um, a, a couple of friends and family from our church were there as well. And the police chaplain said, hey, we have an update for you. Because at this time, we had no idea what was going on. And he said, this hole is an abandoned mine shaft. Apparently, the silver mining company came and dug out all the silver and left the hole you know, without a fence, without a sign, with, didn't fill it in or cover it. And said that uh, there, the bad news is with these types of mine shafts, once you fall in them, there are so many different canals and caves and inlets that sometimes people fall in and they never get found again. He said, the good news is we did find Matt. The bad news is this is the deepest mine shaft I've ever seen in my life. It's 780 feet deep. Matt fell all the way to the bottom and he's dead. Oh, my God. And it's going to take us about an hour to get him all the way back up. Stand by. And, dude, I almost lost it because on September 10th, I lost Steve, who was like a brother to me. We grew up together. And then on November 14th, 64 days later, I lost Matt, the two most important people to me in my life at 21 years old at that time, in accidents that I should have died in. The, the, the surgeon looks me in the face and says, medically, I cannot explain to you why you're alive, you should be dead. It's like Final Destination. I mean, not, I'm not trying to make jokes out of, you've seen that movie where, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just crazy. I mean, oh, it's so awful. And, and you guys are all young guys, and what you were doing was not inherently irresponsible, you're just Dirt biking. Yeah, just dirt biking in a very popular dirt biking area. I mean, it wasn't even like we were where we weren't supposed to be. It was just there, there are thousands of riders that are out there, and sadly, a lot of them fall in these holes. And I guess the problem is about 40,000 unmarked mine shafts in the Southern California desert. So they just kind of say there's no point of even doing anything about it because there's too many. Um, and so that's a really crappy logical progress. Like, hey, man, this is so effed up that it would just be too much work to do anything, so we're just going to ignore the problem, and oh, yeah, people die all the time. That makes me a little angry. And is also kind of like a, a terrible nightmare falling in something like that. I mean, it's like 127 hours where the boulder rolls on the guy's arm and he's stuck there because you could fall down that and, like, break your back and just be stuck there. Absolutely, yeah. Well, so if I hadn't reached the bush then I would have fallen all the way in and Scott would have come with me. We would have been missing people. Our parents would have finally, after a day or two, having not heard of us, gone looking for us because they knew where we were. They would have found our camp, the truck, our tent, the fire, the chairs, you know, everything, the coolers, and would have never, ever known where we were. We would have disappeared without a trace. They would have never found our bikes because they fell in with us, right? So, you know, it's scary. And the fact that that happened two months after the car accident, here I am now 21 years old. I had so much grief of losing the two closest people to me, but I had as equally as much guilt that I survived and they didn't. And it put me in this weird place of never being suicidal. I didn't want to hurt myself, but I did not want to be alive. I felt so guilty every time I'd see Steve's mom and dad and Matt's mom and dad. I couldn't even look at them because their sons were gone, but I made it. And I felt so guilty for being alive that I didn't know how to process that. And so I was still on very heavy pain medicine from my car accident. I was on like heavy narcotics because, I mean, when I say I got in a hurt, you know, I was in a hurt car accident, I was really effed up. And so I realized that if I took my Vicodins and hydrocoding and all these things and drank straight hard alcohol with it, I could pass out. And I started doing that and telling no one. And I had to move back home with mom and dad. Obviously, you know, I was, I was so hurt after the car accident. I was, I was back home with mom and dad. I had to be carried to and from the bath by my buddies. And, you know, that was, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, like slightly ridiculous visual. I mean, yeah, you're just like so helpless at that point, right? Dude, there's a good friend of mine. His name is Dylan. And uh, he actually, we grew up together as well. He lived right across the street. And talk about being a bro. So I couldn't walk at all. And my parents at that time were both working jobs where they had to leave in the morning. And Dylan would literally set his alarm clock, wake up, walk across the street to pick me up and take me to the toilet so I could pee in my in the morning right and then carry me back and go home and go back to bed because when my parents were gone I was immobile to the point like 
talk about being a bro, right? Just literally, and all my buddies took turns of, of carrying me around and feeding me. So being back at my parents' house, right, I would go into my bedroom when no one knew. I would pop these pills and just drink until I passed out. And I'd fall asleep like four o'clock in the morning, wouldn't wake up till like 11 o'clock the next day. And I did that for about a month of just not wanting to be alive until I hit my aha moment. And then that's kind of where everything changed for me. You know, I got a new vigor and a new reason to live. And I went out there and I'm, I'm doing the best I can with the time I have. Wow. I, yeah. I mean, you do have really good friends. I don't know. I guess that's why they call him Morning Piss Dylan, right? Because <laughs> totally. I mean, you, you know, that's a that's a special place in your heart for the guy who's like, it's cold, it's raining, whatever, but I know my boy's got to go to the bathroom, so here I go. Yeah. As silly as that sounds, there's so much love there. That is unbelievable. You obviously grew up in a really strong community. At this point, you're popping the pills and you're waking up really late and kind of doing it all over again. It sounds like you had some pretty intense depression. Oh, yeah, totally. And absolutely depression. But again, guilt was probably the greatest of, of being depressed and, and grieving, but guilt that I was alive. Like I felt guilty for every breath I took that I'm here and they're not. And it didn't make sense to me. And so, you know, to have heard that my two best friends had died, I would have been depressed. But to have should have been dead with them and be the only survivor of the three of us, I didn't know how to process it at all. How did you get out of that? December 18th, I just popped my pills. I just poured my drink. So the car accident was September 10th. The mine shaft accident was November 14th. A month later, December 18th, I'm at my bedroom at my parents' house. I popped my pills, just poured myself a drink. I was getting ready to knock myself out. I'm like yelling to God, like, you screwed up, God. You killed the wrong people. Like, I should be dead, not them. Like, you totally blew it. Like, get it straight, mm -hmm. whatever. Just yelling and talking to Stephen Matt, just totally out loud. If I was home alone at the time, but if anyone was home, they would be like, what are you doing? And I'm yelling to Stephen Matt, and I was just telling them that I was, it gets me emotional still, but that I was sorry that, uh, that I made it and they didn't and that it wasn't fair and that I would rather be dead and have one of them or both of them be alive. And so I just was just yelling and ranting and then it clicked and I said, you know what? For me to just waste my life and feel sorry for myself would be a complete waste of their lives. And so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to do everything I can with my life to make a difference, to make their lives matter, to tell their story like I'm doing now and to carry their legacies on so that when I get to see them face to face again, and I will, and when I get to see my creator, I can point back down at my life and say I used every, every skill, every opportunity, every ability. I used every moment. I left it all down there on the field. I left nothing behind and I did it all for you guys. And so I felt robbed that they had died for no reason. And we weren't being irresponsible, like just minding our own businesses. It was two stupid accidents. So I felt like they were stolen from me. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to make their lives matter by pushing my life to do more for them than I ever would have to live at least a life good enough for three. So when I see them, I can say, because your time was cut short, I did enough for all of us. And I turned to philanthropy. I started a nonprofit January, uh, about 12 days or 15 days later. Learned out very quickly that um, nonprofits are not profitable and that I needed to make money. So my philanthropic heart of wanting to change the world for Steve and Matt was cut short by being broke. So I said, screw it. I need to learn how to be an entrepreneur and make a ton of money. And so I took my ambition, my enthusiasm and entrepreneurship, gave it everything I've got and, you know, have made millions, have lost millions, but I'm way on top financially when all the dust settles and that's able to fund my, my dreams, my, my passions and my desires to make the most of the life I can that while I have the time I have. So how did you, how did you make the money? It's interesting you should say that we had Adam Brown on the show from Pencils of Promise and he's bringing a lot of his business knowledge to the nonprofit arena. The reason he's doing that is because he looks at these nonprofits and he's like, this is ridiculous. It's run like a lemonade stand, a lot of right. these things, because they're like, oh, we're nonprofit, so we don't have to be businessy. And it's like, no, that just means you're inefficient and you're operating on the idea that none of the rewards are going to be your own. So instead of a nonprofit, I love the term you came up with, which is for purpose. Right. Yeah. And so perfect example, Adam Braun with uh, Pencils of Promise, it, they call it a for purpose business. And, um, you know, that's a perfect example. And basically the concept is 
many people think you got to go out there and you got to get rich. And then once you've sold the company for 200 million, you've got enough to live the high life. And you, now you've got some free time. Now go make a difference. And people like Adam and I that subscribe to this philosophy, we disagree. We say that you should make your money while you're making a difference and design your business model around a purpose where you are being and remaining highly profitable. But the structure of either how it's ran or what you do with the product or service is to benefit others while benefiting yourself and that there's no guilt in getting filthy rich along the way but or or whatever doing well financially along the way but you're looking over your shoulder and instead of a wake of profits you've made a wake of of purposeful profits and i argue with people that at the end of the year regardless if you had record breaking you know quarters or made more money than you ever have in your life. The things that you will hold dearest and find the most rewarding is the difference you made in others' lives and however you structured your business. And so, you know, it's good that you mentioned Adam Brown because he and I see eye to eye on this for purpose initiative. And, and that's kind of what I ended up doing is the question I think you asked a second ago is how did I get started? I entered the world of real estate investing and did very well, very quickly. I was at the right place, right time and made a freaking killing. And then the economy shifted and I got freaking killed, right? As the uh, recession came in and the, the real estate collapsed. And uh, while I was making money and being a total punk 22, 23 year old, I'll never forget, I was 23 years old when I had my first six figure month. Yeah, I'll never forget it. I made 121,750 bucks. It was March 2007. I was in Scottsdale, Arizona when it happened at the uh, Fox Sports Grill off Scottsdale Boulevard and we freaking partied till they kicked us out. I thought I'd arrived. And although I was spending my money in stupid ways, like most 23-year-olds that would have that type of financial means would, I was also kind of quietly and privately doing meaningful things with it. I would help a friend in need or I would. I went to Africa for three weeks and worked with with people who have nothing. And, and I went to South America and helped, you know, volunteered in an orphanage. So I was, I was being philanthropic in a totally separate part of my life. I, I would go home and I'd crush business. And then I take some time to give back. And then I go and I crush business and I realize, you know what, of, of the boats I've bought and the Escalades and of all this crap I'm buying, I find the most rewarding part of what I do in the ways that I'm giving back. And so I reevaluated my businesses and created four purpose brands where instead of living two separate lives, the philanthropist and the capitalist, I'm more of a philanthropic entrepreneur. I make more money right now than I ever have in my entire life while making a greater difference than I ever thought possible because it's built into the business model and it's not hard to do. And uh, I would argue that I'm more profitable by doing this than if I was just a traditional for-profit business like everyone else out there. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, first of all, there's data to, to explain this, right? But let, let's pick a company. How about Tom's Shoes, for example? I think most people are, are familiar with Tom's. If not, Google them. They're huge. Tom's was the first person to make literally billions in this for-purpose arena where he said, hey, guys, I've got these cool shoes. You know, they're, they're whatever. They're, they're, not, they're not high-end jogging shoes by any means, but they're, they're whatever, slip-on shoes. And if you buy a pair of my shoes, I will give a pair away. So you can go buy Nikes, you can go buy anything you want, but if you buy from me, just know that some kids somewhere that's so poor, they're barefoot, and all the diseases that come from that, they're gonna get a pair of shoes for the first time in their life. And so people are like, oh, well, I need a new pair of shoes, I might as well go over here and buy Tom's instead. And what Tom has done now is built a multi-billion dollar brand and has literally tens of millions of people now around the world have shoes, and he's you know credited as, as kind of the pioneer in this, and, and Tom's is the name of the company, the guy's Blake, who founded it, He's, you know, kind of credited as a pioneer, but at the end of the day, he's making as much money as he would have. He built the cost of that pair of shoes that's being given away in the purchase price of the original shoes. So he is a philanthropist to a degree, but he's not taking money out of his pocket. He's essentially, I wouldn't use the word overcharging, but he's charging enough in the pair of shoes you are buying that without losing money, a pair goes away, right? And so what that did to Tom's is it exploded because people are like, dude, if I got to buy a pair of shoes, I want to buy his because now there's a meaningful movement behind it. So how many people sell shoes? But what that did for Tom's brand is it distinguished them in a very noisy marketplace. And so what I have found personally and with the people I've mentored in this arena is that if you're in a space that has competition, which is every business in the world, unless you are Mark Zuckerberg and invented Facebook, no matter what you're doing, somebody is competing with you. And they're waking up every single morning with one intention, to kick your butt. So having a competitive edge matters more in today's marketplace than ever before. So one way to immediately distinguish your brand from all your competitors that advertise that they're better than you are, that's what advertising is, right? I am the best, blah, 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 fill in the blank. 
and they're saying they're better than you, one way to distinguish your brand is saying, hey, well, at least by doing business with me, someone or something else benefits besides me. And then instead of necessarily taking money out of your pocket, building within the product or service, the buffer you need to be able to give that resource like Tom's with the shoes or money away, like Sevenly is another example. Dale Partridge, he founded Sevenly. For every single product you buy from Sevenly, they give $7 away. So he's not taking $7 out of his pocket. It's simple. He's just adding $7 to the purchase price of everything he sells. So at the end of the day, he's making as much money as he would have, but he's getting a larger market share because people want to feel good about the money they're spending. And so it's not that complicated. It's just looking at your existing business model or for those that are listening to this that are future entrepreneurs building a business model around some type of a give component. And it's going to do two things for you. Number one, it's going to distinguish your brand. Therefore, I would argue and has proven to get you a larger part of the market share. That means more money. But at the end of the day, when you've spent your 12 months and it's December 31st and you're toasting whoever you're with for the end of that year and you look back at your 12 months of work, regardless of the money you've made, whatever that give aspect was. So for Tom's, the tens of millions of pairs of shoes he gave away or for Sevenly, the millions of dollars worth of actual cash they gave away, I can guarantee you, you'll be happier and prouder of that than you are of the profits, the new cars and the houses you bought yourself along the way. And so that is what I do. You know, give myself therapy of dealing with the loss of Steve and Matt is making as big of an impact in that arena as I can, making as much money as I possibly can because that means that the biggest difference is also being made not feeling guilty about my worth and the money I'm making, but being most proud of the difference I'm able to make. And it's not, like I said, it's not hard to do and we show a lot of people how to do it. How do people do it? I mean, how do people start the for-purpose business? I guess Art of Charm is is similar. I mean, we don't necessarily help poverty-stricken folks, et cetera, but the mission of the business is helping people become extraordinary, putting things out there that are great for people, that are gonna be good for people, and, and it works. You know, we get to sleep at night really easily knowing that we're actually undercharging for a lot of what we do and giving away tons of stuff for free. It's actually pretty nice because- Yeah, you guys are doing awesome things. I think when I was an attorney, even though I was making a lot of money, I was like, this is a freaking scam. (laughs) Right, totally. Oh man, yeah, I've had my fair share of attorneys just in business, right? And uh, I just call them to ask them a question. I get a $300 bill. It's like, what the heck? Yeah, no kidding. Most lawyers are decent folks, but- there's something to be said for like, wait, that email, you say it took you 15 minutes. Did it really, or did it take you five, and then you thought it like seemed long, so sure. I just got billed hundreds of dollars. You have to, because that's how you make your money, right? So now you find you're sort of degrading, you're decaying, your, your morals anyway. So let me answer your question. How does someone do this? It's not difficult at all. There's like a perfect formula for this. Number one, obviously you need to decide that this matters because there's a lot of people, Jordan, and you know this, and I love this, that think I'm crazy. If if everyone loved what I'm doing, then that means I don't stand for anything. I've heard right. a couple of quotes, right? If no one opposes you, then you're not doing anything that matters. So I get my, you know, people throwing rocks at my idea. You idiot, like why would you give money away, you, you freaking retard or whatever, right? But so the, the reality is, number one, you need to decide that you don't wanna just be this for-profit capitalist out there that is racing to make as much money as you possibly can to buy yourself as much crap as you can because I assure you, you'll never have enough. Every time I've gotten to a new income level and upgraded my life, I then look at the next level and I want to continue to aspire, right? That's chasing the wind and that's good, that's ambition but that shouldn't be your purpose, right? So number one, you gotta subscribe that making a a measurable impact in the world matters. Number two, you gotta find a cause or an initiative that resonates with you. Not everyone's passionate about uh, underprivileged children. Not everyone is passionate about animals. Not everyone is passionate about kids with autism. Yet there are certain individuals that that is what keeps them up at night, what they think about the most. So find some type of a cause you wanna believe in. And then here's the thing you have to see a measurable difference with the resources and the impact you're making, and that is so huge, Jordan. When you just write a check, and by the way, I'm not saying don't, but -hmm. when you just write a check to a charity, you feel good, but you didn't get to see your money matter. You just know, hey, I did something very charitable, and now that organization can use it. Instead of writing a check to a charity that buys groceries for homeless people, go to the grocery store, buy groceries, create bags of kits where you've got toothpaste, toothbrushes, deodorant, socks, and then a a week's worth of groceries, put them in 
20 bags, throw them in the back of your freaking car, go hang out where you know that there are a lot of people in need and go personally pass out those bags and watch the tears come down their face and sit on the curb next to them and just chit chat with them about their life. When's the last time anyone ever had a conversation with them like you're at a Starbucks and not on the side of the road where they live? And seeing the measurable difference in how you're spending your money is what keeps you motivated. So number one, decide that this matters. Number two, find an outlet or whether it's an established organization or it's you just doing things like that totally on your own, where you can literally see your money mattering and it's not just getting put into a big fund where you hope it's being spent the right way. And then the third is designing a business that funds that initiative, whether it be directly giving away your product like Tom's did or directly giving money away like Sevenly does, figuring out what makes sense for you. Oh, and there's a third aspect. I have a friend who owns a company who he only hires vets, men and women who have fought for our freedom that might be struggling with PTSD and struggle to keep a solid job. He has a mandatory program that they have to participate in, but if they do that, he will always provide employment for them. And although he keeps all of his profits as well and doesn't have a give aspect, he only employs people who otherwise would be deemed quote-unquote unemployable because they're struggling with PTSD or whatever. And so within his business model, the way he's making money matters there as well. So that's kind of the three outlets. And then it's understanding branding and knowing that as soon as you can legitimize the difference you're making in the world, you now can, with credibility, distinguish your brand in a noisy environment of everyone saying they can do what you do better and then owning that. So my argument is you'll make more money because you'll get a larger market share. Let's say you don't. Right. I assure you that even though you've taken a quote-unquote loss of inventory or loss of potential earnings because you didn't figure out a way to build it into the product or service, let's just say you took a loss. Well, what did you lose? Nothing, because you changed people's lives forever. Consider that an investment. And that's why I'm kind of playing with this phrase. And, and um, a good friend of mine, Jeff, kind of came up with it. He's like, Cole, what you're doing is you're actually buying happiness. The world says you can't buy happiness, but you kind of are coal, but it's not what you buy for yourself. It's what you're buying for others. And therefore you are buying your happiness. And I was like, Hey, that's kind of, that's kind of catchy. I'm going to run with that. And so this is essentially, let's say at the end of the year, you do take a loss. Guess what? You just bought happiness because the money you would have had that you didn't went to something that resonated with you. And you get to see the measurable difference and changes in those people's lives. Boom. Nice. Yeah. So you kind of make it up on both sides. Totally. Yeah. All right, back to the show. Now, you, you're a speaker. You go all over the place and speak in front of thousands of people. You get tons of dough for doing it. Not bad. How did you kick that off? Because a lot of people listening are thought leaders, speakers, even if they're not, they love the idea that this type of thought leadership is possible. Even if you're employed by a corporation, you can always take these tips uh, that people use to network and get business for themselves and apply them in some fashion to your life. So how sure. did you kick off the speaking thing? Because it's tricky. Everybody fashions themselves or everybody fancies themselves some sort of author, speaker, or entrepreneur, but you're actually doing it. Right, right, yeah, and at a very high level. And so one thing I wanna say, you said maybe if you're in an, an executive or a corporate environment, you should still listen, absolutely, honestly, and maybe I'm biased because I make a lot of money speaking, but I don't know of a more uh, versatile skill that can be used on multiple platforms than knowing how to, number one, articulate your thoughts, and then number two, incorporate sales language. You think you know with funnels, right? There's, we call it copy. As soon as it's on the internet, it's copy. And being able to use words that get people to opt into your email or buy your product or whatever, how important that copy is, to know how to do that with your mouth I would argue can be the most profitable skill to have. So no matter where you are in your career or what you're doing professionally, I would highly advocate and promote towards you going out there and studying the art of speaking. And I know a, pre a few episodes ago, Jordan, I was listening to a host you had on that talked about basic speaking skills. So I won't go into what that looks like because there's a lot of content out there of learning how to speak. But you just need to recognize that it doesn't matter where you are. Being able to stand on a stage and freaking nail it and move people to action is important. How I did that was was studying literally like Tony Robbins. I watched probably 400 hours of him on YouTube, on his websites, even if it was a 30 second clip or like you can find some hour and a half talks he's done. And I did not listen to what he was saying, but I listened to what he was doing, how he was phrasing things, how he was framing things, 
how he was creating loops and then solving his loops later on with what led towards his product, et cetera. And I, I did a little bit of R&D, and you know what R&D stands for, right? Sure. Research not, and development? Not in this case. In this right. case, it's rip off and duplicate, right? Okay, what's that? <laughs> just that. Just I saw Tony, and I saw what he was doing, so I ripped off and duplicated it, right? So you can own that one now. Do a little R&D, rip off and duplicate. And so I started taking free speaking gigs. I literally lost money, and I would get you know hired to speak in Phoenix, and I would literally lose money because I would pay for the flight and the hotel room to be there and did not get paid to be there because I had to pay my dues. And so many people see where I am now in my speaking career and think it was easy. I worked my way to where I am by being willing to do the small gigs. I literally would speak to five people if someone would give me the opportunity to refine my skill and get good at it. And then once I felt I had a shot, I started pitching people on letting me speak for them. And I started getting some paid gigs, not because I was this multi best-selling author. And, and here's a big learning lesson for your audience. Most people think that the way you make money speaking is because you're a multi-best-selling New York Times author, you're a multi-millionaire, you're a celebrity, and people pay you to show up. That's traditional. But most of the way I make money is I don't get paid anything unless I sell something for that person on stage. And so what I started doing is my niche at the time was real estate. And I started going and speaking for people who have real estate related products. And I would talk on stage about the value of real estate and how to do it and blah, 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 blah. And say, oh, and by the way, my colleague Jordan has this amazing product. And then I use my sales language, etc., to compel them to make a decision to buy Obviously, the first step in this is 100% believing in whatever the product is you're selling. And I would work it out with you, Jordan, that, hey, you don't pay me a penny, but I get a percentage of whatever I sell. And then I started getting really good at that, started making some really good money, and then I diversified. And I set my eyes for you know the big stages, the, the big, big companies that were doing this. And I went after the number one company in the entire industry that did this. And the CEO of that company is huge. And so here's a lesson within a lesson, right? Because you've heard a million times it said you are the five people you hang out with. I know, Jordan, you're a huge believer of that. Definitely, yeah. That you got to surround yourself with people who are above you. And the, the big question is how do you get their attention? And so here I am, a nobody speaker, and I coveted this stage for this one particular entrepreneur and what he was doing with his brand. And I didn't have a chance at getting this guy's attention. Just, you know, with keeping it somewhat anonymous, he, he's been on reality TV. It's followed his company, his brand. The guy is worth nine figures. He's freaking crushing it. And is like, again, celebrity status. So he's, he's got gatekeepers. So here's what I did. And this is a huge tip for those of you who, who know who that person is in your niche, in your industry. Take this and rip it off and duplicate it. It's yours. Watch what I did. I went to one of these guys' events as a student and watched what he did. And very objectively and critically, thought of things he may have been able to do better. I looked at his website. I looked at everything the guy was up to. And I created about a 100 ideas, some very simple as using different colors and some pretty high-end strategy of what he could have said different on stage. And I somehow found this guy's email. And I started emailing him two or three of those ideas every three or four days. And I call them memorable moments. I did not want to bombard this guy with one list of a hundred ideas because he's busy. He's, he's important. He wouldn't have read it. But I said, I want this guy to know I exist. So I literally emailed him, not even knowing if he was opening them every three or four days with two or three ideas I had to make him more money, make his business better. And I swear to you, I did that for months. Finally, randomly, the guy responds and says, let's set up a meeting. And I got an hour of this guy's time. And I practiced and I practiced and I sat in front of this dude for my hour because I had literally sent him by this point 50 emails with two to three to four points in each. And he's like, dang, like every day I'm in this guy's mind because he's reading an email from me. I sat down with him an hour. I pitched him on what I could do for him and taking the skills and the experiences I had on stages that were totally, totally low end, just ridiculous, but paying my dues. And uh, he thought about it. Two months later, he threw me in with the sharks and said, here's your shot, Cole, go for it. I'll throw you in there and you know, sink or swim. And I freaking practiced, I worked hard, I crushed it, and I now have landed a contract deal where I get to speak for that guy now every single year. Fast forward, he and I are great friends. I was just hanging out at his house last night. Three years ago, I didn't have a shot of even getting a five-minute phone call for him if I was just calling and requesting help. But because I went through this process of, I hate the phrase, but creating value for mm -hmm. him, he actually took the time to sit with me. And so for any of you that are like, how do I expand on my, my five friends, Jordan? Like you always talk about that. How do I do it? Well, that's how I did it. I literally 
strategically sent him an email every few days so that I was always in his inbox. And literally no email would be longer than like 100 words. Excuse me, 100 words. It was just right to the point. And the subject line was catchy enough that I would hope he would open it. And it worked. So if there's like that man or woman that you aspire to get some FaceTime with, try to do what I did because literally, I mean, talk about swinging for the fences. This guy's a celebrity worth 100 million bucks. Yet, at the end of the day, I got FaceTime with him. I was able to be contracted to work for him. I worked my butt off for him. And now we're homies. And we text and we talk. I have a one-hour mentor call with him every single week now on Tuesdays. And I would you know, hold him as one of my top five best friends in the world now. So that was kind of a lesson within a lesson. And then that developed my speaking career where now that I was on that guy's stages, now everybody wants me to speak for them. And, you know, I show up most of the time saying, hey, whatever happens, whatever sells, I get a piece of. And, you know, I'll be at events where the product could be twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. And if I have vetted that product and know that it's worth my energy and that I can believe in it, then I'll always help that person sell it with the skill that I've developed. And they pay me a piece of it. And there have been speaking events where I'll get paid six figures for showing up because of the percentage of sales that I got that I helped create. And right. so you add it all up and you know I have been at or above seven figures a year the last three consecutive years through none of my business activity and through speaking alone. And very few of that was, hey, cool, I'll pay you 30 grand to show up and talk for an hour. Almost all of it was me building relationships with people who have brands that have products for sale where I show up and, and again, I want to say one more time, I'm not hawking crap from stage. The only time I would ever do this is because I believe in the person running the company and I believe the product actually helps people. But using the skill that I've developed where I say, don't pay me anything, but I get a piece of the sales, I help them sell and you add it all up and it's been seven figures for me. And, um, and at the end of the day, I'm helping people enroll in programs that's changing their lives forever. That is so awesome. I, I mean, I love the fact that you're leveraging it. You're like a mercenary, like a speaking mercenary. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I, I reaffirmed that skill. Like you guys need to understand this. Regardless of what you're doing right now, I am a valuable asset to people because I have learned through six years of doing this now. It's not like this came overnight of how to articulate things and frame things in a way that gets people to move to action in an authentic way. It's not like I'm hypnotizing people to buy crap they shouldn't. I just very clearly and in compelling language get people to get out of their fears get out of their own way, understand that whatever the product is I'm selling will be better for them and to help them make the decision of moving forward. Because I have that skill, people pay me a lot of money to use it. That's so great. Speaking of moving us to action, tell us what's going on with Thrive and what that's gonna be about. So back to the conversation we are having a few minutes ago of, of having a for-purpose aspect. Uh, Thrive is an event where I'm getting people together. Adam Braun is, is one of them. Uh, we've got some of the best speakers of the world, most notably yourself, Mr. Jordan Harbinger. Yes, true. Most notably, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who are going to be out there uh, speaking for three days on talking about three things. Number one, how to make money. Uh, we have multimillionaires, uh, people who are running $3.4 billion companies that are coming out there to teach you guys how to make money. The second thing we're going to talk about is how to protect your money. I think that that is an under-discussed subject that there's a lot of people saying, hey, let me show you how to get rich. People make money and then they get freaking screwed because they had no idea how to protect their assets and, and structure their entities in a way that mattered, right? So how to protect your money and what to do with it once you've got it. And then number three, how to make money matter. And you know, I gave you the cliff note version, but we're gonna have Adam Braun himself and others like him and myself who have four purpose brands teaching the audience how to change their existing business model into a four purpose or if they wanna start one, how to start a four purpose business where at the end of the day, they're making as much or arguably more money, again, because they got that market share, but most importantly, giving back along the way. And uh, again, we have some of the best speakers in the world. We've got Gary Vaynerchuk, Tucker Max, Lewis Howes, James Altucher, uh, Dan Martell, Keith Ferrazzi, and um, a lot others that uh, we can't talk about right now because in the contract, they have their own events coming up. So they said, hey, not until my event passes, can you promote that I'm there? And one that just came in yesterday, which uh, I can't talk about yet, but I'll give you a little hint. If any of your listeners like the show Shark Tank, wink, wink, then uh, you might want to come to this event as well because there just might be sharks there. And so uh, it's it's pretty powerful, Jordan. 
Thrive itself encompasses this. It is a for-purpose event. And so I've got about a half a million in. Once I get all my money back, 100% of ticket profits go to a human project, which is a nonprofit. So what better way to lead by example than to throw this huge event and all the money it makes, you know, once we've recuperated our expenses, all of it is going to go to a charity, a nonprofit, which, which works with uh, youth who are victims of, of abuse. And so, you know, we're putting our money where our mouth is by making the event itself a for-purpose event. That sounds so awesome. So where do people find out about it, grab tickets, et cetera? Uh, don'tmissthrive.com is the website they can go to. And uh, obviously, we love to reward people who take action. So when ticket sales go live, they will be the cheapest and have the most promos ever and they will only become more expensive and have less promos as time goes on. And then it will sell out. We, uh, with, the, with the speaker lineup we have and the space we have available, it will sell out. So ticket sales go live June 15th. Uh, the event is not until October, but I would imagine will be sold out sometime in August, if not sooner. So, uh, you know, people can just head over to Domus Thrive and assuming it hasn't sold out by the time you hear this, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, pick up your tickets there. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. It's been really enlightening and really looking forward to the event as well. Dude, I can't wait to uh, rock out with on stage with you, bro. Likewise. All right, cool. Speak soon. Cole's always interesting to talk to. Definitely got a little bromance going. He's a really inspiring guy, does a lot for other people, and uh, definitely has an interesting backstory. So I hope you enjoyed hearing about the for-purpose business as much as I did, and hopefully we'll see you at Thrive. I think that would be really fun. I'm going to be speaking there. I'm pretty stoked about it. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Cole on Twitter. We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. And uh, there's other resources, of course, mentioned on the show that will be in the show notes. I also post tons of stuff on Twitter that never makes it to the show. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I got articles, insights, and other crap. Bootcamp details for our live programs at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And remember, we're sold out five to six months in advance, so... If you're even thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP to get some info from us so you can plan ahead. And also on the website is not only the blog with tons of amazing articles, but our bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough AOC. Remember to subscribe in iTunes and alternately we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 